This is the organic stream. Welcome. If you look at the history of civilization, there is a direct relationship between the decline of soil quality and the decline of those civilizations. All these things came from the earth. They need to go back to the earth. We're not just keeping this stuff out of the landfill and making it broader. And that's the attitude you have to take. Every single day, somebody knocks on your door and says, Can I have your way to do Hi there, and welcome to another episode of the Organic Stream on CompostStory.org. I'm your host, Aline Murphy, and today is part one of a two-part special on the soil, its role as a basis of human economy, and how we can change our practices to protect and manage our soil sustainably. We are very lucky to have industrial and environmental economist Robin Murray with us today to speak about this topic. Robin is a senior visiting fellow at the London School of Economics and an associate of Cooperatives UK. He's co-founder of the environmental partnership Ecologica and of the fair trade company Twin Trading and has been involved in fair trade, waste management, design and social innovation for many years. And to set the scene today for our topic, let's start by acknowledging that we are experiencing a soil crisis at the moment. An estimated 55% of the world's desertified land is attributed to soil degradation, which is costing more than $400 billion a year. 60% of the carbon stored in soils and vegetation has been lost since the 19th century, and in an era where 70% of all industrial input comes from the soil, it's very clear that we cannot survive without it. Yet at the same time, there is a great chasm between what science and history tells us about soil's role as the basis of human economy and existing policy instruments for sustainable development around the world. In today's episode, we're exploring the reasons behind this chasm and what we can do as communities and economies to reconnect ourselves with the soil and save our planet. We'll discuss the ways in which our current economic and political models of mass production have severed the link between communities and the soil, how politicians and policymakers are reacting, and how a new circular system might integrate soil management better. In part two, we'll continue on this topic and focus on the opportunities we have for changing our system, the role of education in this change, and the roadblocks we might face along the way. Now, before we start, I'd like to thank Wylad Living Soils for making this episode possible. Wylad Living Soils is an Australian-owned company formed to supply sustainable, biological, organic and humus compost fertility products and programs that support the natural balance of the physical, chemical and biological aspects of the soil lessening the reliance on conventional chemical fertilizer inputs. For more information, check out their website at www.ylad.livingsoils.com.au And now, let's go to the interview. Robin, we've had a very bad track record, at least in the West anyway, uh, with taking care of our soils, because even though... Our entire existence is completely locked into the soil. The link between soil and human economy and human existence is very rarely discussed. But as an economist yourself, could you give us some background maybe into the history of our relationship with the soil and explain to us this link? Well, humankind has always had a very close relations with the soil. But one of its problems is as it develops the tendency has been for a a rupture to grow between them. 
So one of the great divisions, we always talk about class divisions, but one of the huge divisions in human history is between cities and the country. The great empires, if you take the great empires, one thesis is that empires have to feed themselves and therefore they draw on their immediate environments in order to feed their central cities of their empires. But the tendency has been for them to deplenish, to deplete the, the areas around them. Gradually, the quality of the soil decreases, and so they have to expand the empire in order to get to new places. So there's a kind of diminishing returns sets in, and it is, is, is one of the forces for them to then go farther and farther afield in order to get both the food, but also the raw materials and so on, necessary for it. And after a bit, to actually keep control of such a vast empire means larger armies, and therefore they have to be fed, and it's a kind of cycle which suddenly explodes, and they get weakened, and the new empire starts up again. Or it just breaks open, as was the case in, in Europe after the end of the Roman Empire just broke up into much smaller areas, which had a different relation to the soil. There are two exceptions to this pattern. One is China, and the second is Egypt. In the case of Egypt, why that was not affected in the same way is that their human waste was fed back and replenished the soil around them, mainly through the impacts of the floods, the way the Nile flooded everything. And in China, it was much more explicit, which is always the human waste is gathered and has always traditionally been then used for fertilization. And of course, in the early modern era here, the same was true in Britain. Cheshire and Hertfordshire, they became very fertile areas. And this was because of night soil, which was taken from the cities to the countryside. And you could say that the WC was one of the big the big force is to rupture that uh, connection between the human waste, as it were, and soil fertility. So you've got the, the rupture growing, so that now, as we all know, many people in the towns don't know what a chicken looks like or you know, where milk comes from. And this is a terrible, a terrible rupture. And at the moment, it's not just the WC that stands between the humans of the town and the countryside. It is also the supermarkets and these long food chains of food distribution, which are also cutting it down. And so the question is how to reconnect the two, because they are connected. They are connected. We may not be aware of it, but we are part of the cycle. And if we deplenish, if we deplete the soil, because we take the nutrients from it without returning them into that place, we then either lose them, destroy them, put them in the wrong place or whatever, if we destroy the cycle between, the cycle within which humans live, then that cycle, just like the Roman Empire, we will collapse from within. In the past, we have tended to see the link as very much one where the earth is a source to be used, to be extracted from. This is, some people call this natural capital, and that we've been running down our natural capital because we haven't been thinking how to maintain it. And in that sense, I think it's been seen as rather a separate. It's been a kind of bit piece in the human economic drama. Whereas I think what is uh, now being recognized is that they are very much more interconnected. The, the human economy, the contemporary economy, is going through enormous changes. 
And it's moving from the 20th century period of mass production to a much more complex information-centered form of production and distribution. Some people have called this, I myself have called this post-Fordism. Fordism was the mass production, but we've now gone way beyond Ford. I don't think I would call it Googleism either, but it's a quite different model. And this has great significance, I think, for our relationship with materials and with the soil. So that instead of looking at things relatively simply as linear flows, we are looking at them with much greater complexity. And as we see things more complex, we see that actually the soil and earth fits into more complex systems and cannot just be treated as an input that is then producing an output. Yeah, exactly. And I do think, um, as you say, that people are starting to realise this and they're beginning to understand the importance of managing the soil in a sustainable way. Yes, it's... It's, I found that, um, as you may know, I, I've worked a lot in fair trade here. And um, one of the things I've learned, which has been a, a really profound experience, is that we have a nut company, which is called Liberation Nuts. And uh, it's owned by the nut farmers. And the ones who do cashews are from Kerala in India. And they've almost become our educators because they come from a Gandhian tradition. And the Gandhian tradition is very much about connecting the human beings and the soil. And um, they send us reading. And one of them is by, sometimes people call him Gandhi's economist. There's a man called Kumarapa. And he said, you have to, we have to deeply respect the soil and what it produces and how we think about these two things. That, that whole Gandhian principle of changing yourself and then changing what is around you and making sure your technology is under your control and not controlling you. That was a voice which was drowned out by the period of mass production, in my view. Now I think we've actually come to the other way, which I think the Gandhian approaches, which our Indian colleagues follow. And a striking example of that is with the Amish in North America, who, if you go to an, an Amish farm, there are no tractors and everything is done organically. And what is so striking is that this pre-modern form that the Amish have, regularly, the productivity of their soil came out the highest in North America. So these, those practices, but when married with modern information and communication technology, that's the point. It's not just to keep it like that. This is a very powerful recipe for thinking in a different way about how to produce the food for 10 billion people. And I think you might say that the next revolution, the next agricultural green revolution, is not going to be about seeds and plants and uh, GM crops and so on. It is to be about the soil. And if we think of the soil as the object for revolution through all these different means, then I think we've got a light in front of us to which we can direct our energy. Mm -hmm. Yes, and I think many people would say that um, the soil is integral to every other part of our lives 
and is essential as well for a healthy environment. Um, but even still, we've had a very bad track record, like I said at the start, of taking care of our soils, so much so that we're experiencing a soil crisis right now. Uh, do you feel that influencers such as policymakers and politicians realise the importance of soil when they approach maybe waste management practices and agricultural policies, things like that? No. The, the answer to that from the British perspective, my experience here, is we're right at the foot of Everest on this one. I think um, I've been involved what, for 20 years on the, the issue of waste. It was very difficult to get waste pushed up the agenda, to get people to think about waste, politicians and indeed the press and so on. Very difficult. When I started in the mid-90s, I think our recycling rate was 5%. And it just was not on the radar. And also to be an official in the local government in the waste department, this was you know, slightly like being in the fire brigade. It was the kind of Siberia in terms of the hierarchy. And so how to get people to be aware of the, in this case, the negative aspects of waste, the landfill incineration and so on, these all had their extremely negative side, let alone the positive. So it took five years for us in this country to move to a point where it became a national issue. And it became a national issue very much because of the negative sides of the issues around, particularly about incineration. So always, and I think it's been true of the environmental movement more generally, but very often, like with Rachel Carson, it is the negative effects which then get people involved and then have to then think, okay, how could it be different? So the first way it happens is always local because it is the local people who then realise that this is actually affecting them. And that is the basis then for saying there has to be some other alternative. And out of that then becomes an interest that the next interest is in some form of recycling, but the in which both the traditional officers and, to some extent, the politicians have then thought, is that they thought, OK, well, how do we prevent this getting into landfill or indeed incinerators? And they then have these targets for recycling. But actually, it's a, a little bit like supply push. They don't really think, what is this going to be used for? They just want to keep it out of their residual waste statistics, usually because there's a, an increasing bit of a punishment on them there in financial terms. The idea that actually, in relation to organic waste, that it is actually precious and that this is a resource which you must produce with quality as if you're a supplier, that you're actually responsible for the quality of your output. We want everything that one rescues from the waste to actually maintain not just its original quality, but all the energy and labour that has gone into it. Like rubber tyres have been very well used for uh, making basketball courts. Glass has been used as very good filtering mechanisms. That's an upcycle, in my experience still, of much of the waste industry, the waste politics and the waste management by public officials. This still, in the older generation, has yet to penetrate. The younger ones, this is who we found are the potential agents for change, the young ones who are part of the new generation. Some of them see it much more ecologically. They see themselves as kind of like farmers of waste, you know, as, as stewards of waste, 
not of waste, but as what we might call nutrient managers in relation to the organic side. But still, we've got the silos of waste management, the silos of agriculture. Very little do they meet. Very little do they meet. And in Britain, there's been more connection on the paper side than there has been on the soil side. Soil and bio-waste is still very much in the back seat here. And not even the CO2 implications of composting have been adequately taken on board. They do not become part of the discussion. So my answer to you on that one is there is still some way to go. Interesting, um, especially when you consider, like you mentioned, that soil can be a major reservoir or sink for CO2. Uh, but then in order to affect change and influence policymakers and politicians, how do we act? Uh, do we focus on the local side of things or do we aim for national campaigns and debates? Well, I think that the way in which these big changes, because this is a big industrial change, certainly on the waste side, and possibly in some ways, uh, the agricultural one is, is, there are certain similarities, certainly with the big industrial farms. When you're changing, it always changes at the margins. This is where it happens first, because the big forces of the old system are not as strong. And so you, you get it coming up from the base. And I think both in Europe and North America, it has been the community movement that has, over the, since the mid-70s, really led the way in this. And then what happens is the first impact tends to become at the local level. And local politics has been much more about waste politics than national level, because it's immediate. It uh, tends to be under municipal or provincial control. But once this happens, you then have a basis for then moving it up to the national level. It's much easier in cases which have proportional representation, because then groups either green groups or specific groups around waste issues, can then get a representation politically. And this is why Germany, for example, has been one of the leaders in terms of establishing very much more satisfactory types of recycling or nutrient management, and if you like, a new circular economy. I think this is because they have not only proportional representation, they have very strong lander, so that there's considerable decentralization, so some of these lander, reflecting the work of the movements, then put these things into practice and the, the results can then be seen and they begin to join up and then they are a force at the national level which then has to contend politically with the interests of the old systems. That's what's happened on the energy side and it is amazing now that that is cross-party it started with the Greens, then the Social Democrats, and then the Christian Democrats took it on and took the lead because they see the advantage in this case of the energy system for all sorts of interests who they represent because it's a distributed system. So, you know, local villages and local farmers and so on all have an interest in that new system. The same thing is needed on the, the waste side. We have to reintegrate it and distribute the interest in this new system. Right, so a decentralised and distributed system that ensures that all sections of the community have an interest and a say in what's happening is a good way to go, you think. But as you said in the beginning, these are big industrial changes we need to make in how we run things, waste management-wise or agriculturally. 
And we're essentially talking about a paradigm shift here from our current economy to a more circular one. And do you think this new distributed economy will be able to integrate soil health and management better? Well, in principle, I think it, I, in principle, I think it should. You see, uh, amongst the features of the new economy, one is what we economists call the movement from supply push to demand pull that instead of producing lots of stuff and then trying to persuade people to buy it, you're starting at actually from the people and thinking, how do you supply all the different things that different people want? So it's, you've gone beyond the mass. Now, what, what I think we've got to is the moment you then introduce the circular, you realize that the human demand, we can't just stop at human demand because we've got to think of it as part of a cycle. And if we look at our demands on a production process like that, i.e. not pushing out, but thinking, right, how do we get this going? How do we pull it round a sustainable way? We then get very different questions. And certainly when we come to waste, we are asking not how to get rid of the waste, but how to actually ensure that it goes round. How do we pull it round? in a way which is sustainable and enriching. I mean, that's one difference. The second one is that information technology has allowed us to manage very much more complex systems. That is one of its great features. And what has happened is, instead of trying to control everything from the center, we've got the development of what is referred to as distributed systems. And if you took the German renewable energy economy, is is a wonderful example, how instead of having a power station, you have multiple power stations. I mean, the people's homes become a power station. The farm is part of a power station. There are hundreds and hundreds, hundreds of power stations, which are then aggregated through smart grids and various other mechanisms, so that they produce as much, if not more, than a single power station. This is a completely different model. Now, traditionally, farming and agriculture has been a distributed system. I grew up on a small hill farm, and and the valley was full of small hill farmers. What has happened, particularly on the more fertile areas, is that farms have got larger and larger, as a 20th century mass production model is then applied to agriculture. But I think that we are now moving into the possibility of a much more distributed system of agriculture and food growing and soil uh, soil care. That is what is possible. It's not going to happen. It is a possibility which would, in that sense, be similar to the energy systems developing in Germany, as against the UK. And a third very interesting modern feature is that the so-called consumer is becoming part of production. We are becoming prosumers. Well, we know about this with food. We actually have to cook our own food, or at least we did have. But in more and more areas, whether it be health and how we look after our health, many of the modern issues like chronic disease, in diabetes, 98.5% of all treatment is done by the person or their family who has got diabetes. The same is true in education. The same is, is true in transport. So that now people are having to design systems so that we are all actively involved. By the way, the computer, of course, is a, is a wonderful example. The computer is the, are the equivalent of the textile mills of the 19th century. But in this case, we've all got one. 
And so it's a highly distributed system. And once you get people involved, then you have to think, right, what can they contribute? How should they contribute? How do they play a part in this increasingly complex system? And it's a very exciting area. So that when we come to food and to soil, how do we ensure that the grievous divide between the city and the country does not become the chasm that is threatened, but is actually reintegrated so that we all play a part in this particular process? Mm-hmm. And uh, we'll go into detail about ways that we can organise our ecosystems and the strategies for change in part two. But uh, just to round off this part of the discussion, can you give me some examples maybe of how people can play a part in this new system and the opportunities you see for change? Well, I think there are part of the food movement has been about this. So the, the movement for urban agriculture is gathering and is stronger in some places than others. But the, the development of gardens on roofs, is it in North Korea, which is particularly strong on this, but Nicaragua is another example where this has happened. But it's happening now more and more in San Francisco is strong on this. We have strong movements and, and a strong tradition of allotments here. Um, so I think gardening, even though it may not be producing food, is actually, it brings people in touch with the fact that you cannot treat soil as if it's a machine, that you have to do this delicately. So everyone is learning about that. So I think that on the food side, there are city farms. There's a a big city farm movement, and the community garden movement here is growing. So I think there are very interesting ways in which that is happening. And then there are all sorts of ways in which farms are being opened up to those from the city, both to go and stay there or to work there or at least to visit. And so I think that's one of the big, the big areas for reconnection. That was part one of the two-part interview with Robin Murray for the Organic Stream on CompoStory.org. If you have any questions or comments, do leave them at compostory.org or send us a tweet at compostory.org. I hope you join us for part two, where we get much deeper into the discussion. Until then, and until next week, take care. Compostory.